0: Like it or not, we're getting older. My guest says the only enemy we have when it comes to growing old with vigor, grace, and purpose is not believing we can. On this episode of the Executor Help Podcast, Stephen Petru, author of Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Welcome to the Executor Help Podcast,
1: the show dedicated to help you settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, visit davided.com. Now here's your host David Eady.
0: Today with me on the Executive Health Podcast is Stephen Petro. He is an an award-winning journalist and author, best known for his Washington Post and New New York Times essays on aging, health, and civility. He's also the author of the very funny and emotional book "Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old." Stephen, I want to take you. Thank you for taking the time to uh, have this conversation. Tell you what I really loved about the book. When I'm reading it, it had me nodding, saying, yeah, I get it. And then there's there's an emotional moment where I go from laughing and agreeing with everything you're saying to the touching moments about uh, uh, emotional power about um, a, a dying parent. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So I just want to thank you. Well, actually, my first question to you is, are you old? Do you feel old? How old are you?
1: Am I old? Do I, do I feel old? Well... Uh, I am
0: 65 Okay,
1: and um, in this country because I know you're in Canada this is considered um, my Medicare birthday and uh,
0: congratulations
1: thank you um, it's it's been actually it's been a little bit more interesting than I anticipated so so stupid things was published a year ago when I was 64 and um, I didn't have any problem with you know telling every in every interview I'm asked how old I am and I was like well, I'm 64 I felt I felt great I feel great but uh You know, and I've always talked about how, you know, age is just a number and, um, you know, you really really just want to get into, you know, what's your mental state? How do you you feel about things? Are you engaged? Are you curious? I did find that, you know, 65 kind of made me think a little bit harder about that. I think in part because I get this response from people, oh, my God, I can't believe you're 65. And it's kind of like a half compliment. Oh, like you look you look good. I can't believe you're 65. But the other part of it is, oh my God, you're 65, you're so old. And so it's I had to sort of reconcile a little bit of those two pieces in my head. And and the theme of the book is, as you know, David, is these. The way we internalize what it means to get older has a really powerful impact on how healthy we are, physical health, mental health, and that it can even shorten our lives up to seven and a half years. So I really want to stay embracing of my older age, but I've had a little bit of a struggle. It's only, I'm
0: only a month into this new year. Well, I'm 62, so we're, I'm a little longer, younger than you. Um, mm-hmm. So as we're, all, we're both baby boomers. What are your thoughts about being old? Is it what you thought it would be like? Cuz you know, if we think of when we were growing up we're saying 65, wow, that's really old. And now we're here. Is it is it what you what it's cracked up to be? Yeah.
1: I mean, I um you I, mean, I remember my grandparents and like um, one of my grandmothers died at 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 I believe 73 and I had a grandfather who died, you know, in his in his mid seventies I'm only 10 years away from that essentially. But, you know, in my mind, they were old people, even when I was, you know, when I was a kid. And I think there's been a lot of generational change, you know, our parents, as well as ourselves in terms of, uh, you know, both in terms of attitude, but also, you know, greater, um, you know, greater time spent on, on fitness, thinking about good nutrition, you know, taking care of ourselves. So to be 65 today is not at all what it meant to be 65, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And, uh, but baby boomers have grown up with that notion in their heads. And so, you know, again, the book is trying to dispel some of that and let us, you know, let each of us kind of claim this age for who we are and how we want to be.
0: Right. now I know in the book, you, you've got these stupid things that you won't say or do. Have you been able to keep those uh, promises to yourself? <laughs> you know, it's funny, David. You know, I, I mean, the way this book came
1: about was I started um, keeping a list of things I wasn't going to do that my parents were doing. And uh, it kind of got longer and longer and then it became a New York Times column. And uh, a lot of people read it and a lot of people like 200 sent me their own lists. They were, they were doing the same thing I was doing at home. They were creating these lists of things they weren't going to do because they wanted to live smarter and longer than, than their parents. And, um, you know, so I thought, okay, I got the lists. I wrote my book. I've been talking about the book and then I was like, I forgot. The other part of this is I have to implement what I wrote about. <laughs> and, uh, I hate that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's things have come up in, in the past year. I, um, I uh, was trying to get a book off the top of my bookshelf not that long ago. And I'm doing like one of the things my dad would have done, sort of not thinking about balance, not thinking about the risk. And I have one foot on my desk and one foot on a chair. And I'm still leaping into the air to try to reach this book. And I go, Stephen, this is a stupid thing. This is one of those stupid things. Go get the step stool. I had a step stool in the closet, and that was like the first like um, moment where it's like, okay, you really need to start implementing this list because no one no one escapes from you know getting older, and we want to get older and um, and be healthy and 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 be happy and not not have a broken this or that.
0: Well, just by that that picture of you wanting to leap up, what could possibly go wrong by you just doing that sort of? That movement, what what are you thinking? Uh, You know, it's unfathomable what could
1: go wrong. Just like, and so I have a next door neighbor and I'm sure he was thinking the same thing. And he actually thinks this whole book is about him. But he was up um, in the (laughs) mountains kind of close to where I am. And he decided to cut down a tree by himself. What could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong was the tree fell on him and um, he almost died from that, but he got airlifted
0: so on. But he jokes with me now. uh, That was my really big, stupid thing. And I'm like, Exactly. (laughs) Or I'm going to touch on a a bunch and just get your comments. There's a bunch of uh, stupid things that I don't know if you're not doing or you thought about. Um, When you said about your dad, I saw this one and I just started to nod, is um, when it comes to uh, having a pee, apparently you won't pass up a chance. Um, That reminds me of my dad because every time he was about to leave the house, he would turn around. And now I find myself doing that. Um, Maybe that's too much information, but... Is, is that something? <laughs> well, that's that's certainly one of the lessons
1: that I got. And and the book is kind of divided into three sections. Some stupid things I won't do today, tomorrow, and at the end. And if, if I remember correctly, that one's in the in the today part because it's something I you know I could actually accomplish. And I learned that lesson by uh, trying to get to the Los Angeles airport, long car ride, running late, tried to use a pee bottle at the last minute. Messy, not a good idea. So um Now I realize it's a little bit unpredictable, and better to be safe than sorry. And um, so
0: I go ahead and and take care of my business before I go anywhere. And uh, so, so let's get off for me. So let's get off our 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 pee rituals, both of us. So um, another one you won't do is you won't lie to your doctor anymore. Was that becoming a problem? You know that was on my list
1: in terms of my parents, and I saw I saw both of them lying lying about. they, said they would say they're taking their medications. They were not taking their medications. I found my dad um, you know, kind of uh, spilling his um, blood pressure medications into the toilet. I really don't know why, but he was always telling the doctor that he was very compliant. And so that was a problem because things were going wrong. And then, you know, it's not as though I am beyond reproach because in sort of telling that story, I realized I wasn't always taking some of my medications for various reasons. I wanted a drug holiday. I wanted to extend that prescription a little bit longer, um, but it was really kind of the same impact. And then when my doctor would say, so are you following my orders? I go, oh, sure, sure. Um, and I had a problem with a um, SSRI, an antidepressant medication that um, I wasn't following his orders. And I, I learned to, um, to be more truthful uh, kind of as a, as a result of a harsh and scary incident. So let's consider our doctors, our partners, rather than you know our
0: adversaries. Yeah, absolutely, and does that mean that you, uh, reason why you won't stop enjoying yourself, even you know, that means well, the occasional candy bar?
1: More, more than the occasional candy bar, but you know, life is meant to be lived. Um, uh, interestingly, I am now writing a new book about finding joy in challenging times, which comes out of, of out of the pandemic. But I think you know it's something that I I was aware of, but really hadn't been able to articulate in the way that I'm trying to now. You know. We can do all these things in terms of self-improvement, you know, uh, you know, not put ourselves at risk for this or that, eat better, you know, get help when we need it. But life is about living. Life is about joy. And uh, so if that means, you know, an indulgence, you know, with moderation, you know, that's all great. And I, and I do do that and I enjoy it. And I think the joy offsets, um, you know, some of the calories or maybe I'm a little
0: bit in denial. So that researching that do, you're doing with that book, you know, uh, finding joy coming out of the pandemic, do you, because it kind of falls into what you're doing, you know, what you talk about in this book and what you're doing now, do you find it's harder for people to find joy, especially at an older age and everything that we're all going through?
1: You know, David, that's a really good question. And, you um, know, one of the things that I, that I learned in, in writing this book was getting older is, one thing, and it's very separate from becoming ill, and we tend to conflate them in, in our culture. Um, that they're really kind of synonymous, and um, they're not. And illness is a challenge. Illness, um, you know, you know, illness can be um, is bad in, in many ways. It, um, you know, it's about uh, you know being sick. You know, older age. There's so many things that can come with that that are positive, and um, you know, both both wisdom. You know, the ability to apply the experiences that we have, I think different kinds of um, emotional intelligence. We don't talk about them that often, but they really exist and, and it's important to cultivate them. So, um, you know, so I, I really kind of distinguish those two. And I'm not sure that I answered your question. I'm not trying to avoid.
0: It. <laughs> well, all I was just wanted to find out is that as baby boomers, we've what we're going through now, I don't think our parents went through the sort of change that's go- going on around the world. And it's, you know, maybe they went through world wars and other things, yeah. but our generation now we've got, you know, come through a pandemic and it just seems to be a lot less joy because we're also connected and that we're, we're not very kind to each other. Yeah. And um, that's
1: a really um, important observation. And, um, you know, one that I think is true, you know, it's always, um, You know, when you're in the middle of a storm, you know, it always can look like the worst storm to you. So this is, you know, this is our generation's storm right now. And, you know, we've come through, you know, we've come through a pandemic. You know, we've come in this country, we've come through and we're going through a lot of um, political division and fracture. You know, climate change is impacting and scaring um, many of us. So it, it is a very challenging time and it can really tamp down uh joy but i think joy is like joy is like water and air we we need it to live we need it to um you know to be able to to be connected to sing to have reasons to get up in the morning and so i'm still doing the research on this book so i don't have like i don't have my soundbite for you right but you know there are many ways there are many places that we know that we can get joy chocolate bar might be one of them and there are more places that might give us some even more satisfying types of joy that we're not fully aware of and i'm going to be trying to explore many of those in this book as well as the idea that joy lives in each of us and sometimes we have to reach back into ourselves into our memories to
0: uh, to retrieve that it's trying times and and so i'll go to another one in terms of and i agree with this one and it kind of overlaps with you know enjoying yourself but I agree with you. I won't be ordering the early bird special. <laughs> I, I, when we're away on vacation, I'm not doing it. It's just not happening. So, so, uh, so what's your experience with that, David? It just, just seems wrong that I'm eating at 4.30. It's, it's like it's like that Seinfeld episode where, you know, yes. the food's better at 4.30, but it, it goes up at 6. I, I can't do it. Would that make me feel old? Will that make me old? Well, you know, it, it, do you do an early bird special?
1: I, I generally do not. I, I really try not to. And, um, you know, so a lot of this book is about just trying to, like, open our eyes a little bit to some of the decisions we make with and habits that we have without really thinking about them. And this is one that definitely came from my parents. That as the years went by. You know, they were kind of continental and when we would eat dinner growing up because my dad worked kind of late days and we would eat at 7 or seven thirty in the evening you know and by the time they got into their late 70s early 80s they wanted to eat at four thirty or 5. Uh, I had just finished launch um, as you know as general with the case but this is actually one of the ways that we kind of started to shorten our days and then you know you go to sleep earlier you know sleep well and it becomes part of this cycle. So while well, I'm all for people saving money by going out you know, for the early bird special, I kind of got knocked around a little bit. You know, Seniors don't have as much money and I totally get that point. Um, think a little bit about sort of how you want to structure your day. You're not likely actually to be hungry at that time, but it's kind of becomes the convention. People do it and then we're all sheep. So don't be a sheep. Okay, I,
0: I, I agree with that. But it's going to be a long while before I'm eating at 4.30. It's just not going to be happening. But, uh, maybe maybe uh, never. Do. Probably. I think so. Um, I found it kind of interesting. The, the question you talked about uh, won't be unkind to those with dementia. My dad suffered with it. And I, I found myself getting really frustrated um, when he had it. And I get it. But they can also become very aggressive. So I had to remember he was sick. What what intrigued me why you would talk about that in dementia and being uh, kind to people with uh, who's been afflicted with it?
1: Well, I'll tell you, because I was unkind to my mother when she was first coming down with dementia. And um, I remember, I very clearly remember the day I was at her house. I was at their house and I got, I got a phone call from a friend and I could hear my friend say, may I speak to Stephen?" But my mom had answered the phone. And without Missing a beat, and with me standing next to her, she said, Stephen's not here. She hung up the phone. And I was very exasperated with her. I said, and I was like, I use like that mom, you know, like she would have used at me when I was a kid. Um, you know, what's going on with you? What's, what's wrong with you? Um, and I didn't know anything was wrong with her, but I was kind of sharp with her and admonished her. And um, you know, and of course that had you no know, impact on, on her behavior. And then it was really only as time went by that she actually got an official diagnosis. And I began to understand and much greater empathy, you know, what was going on for her. Cause she actually was aware at that point that, you know, that this disease was taking her over and she was embarrassed and chagrined. And so, um, you know, so I really, um, I worked hard to, to make that shift um, away from being, you know, the son who is being judgy and knows best to, you know, being the son who is compassionate and, and empathetic, but it was definitely, you know, it was definitely a journey. And a lot of people have found that that chapter resonated with them because especially with our parents, our loved ones, it's hard to see them start
0: to become um, invisible to us and to themselves. It's a
1: very painful thing.
0: That's where we, we, it's hard and we're, we're fighting it, it's, but that's when we, be, we start to become their parents. And I can clearly remember my dad was acting very um, aggressive. I actually had to step in because he you know, threatened the life of my mom. So I had sure. to get him moved out of the house. But once I had him in the facility, every time I'd go, he'd scream and yell at me and I'd have to leave the room. And uh, my partner, she would say, you know what, he's not himself. And, and so I got to the point where I would just say, you know what? I love you, dad. I'll be back tomorrow. But he never forgave me from taking him out of his house. But that was to protect both of them. And I have to understand, and people have to understand when a family member, especially if it's a parent, you have to understand they're not, you still see them as how they always were. And it's hard to grasp that that person that you know is not there anymore and just enjoy them for uh, for who they are and how long you're going to have them. That That's was uh, very hard.
1: Yeah, it's very hard, and um, I often found, you know, in, especially in my mother's case, you know, really having to say what you said. This is not who she was, and that this is the disease that is speaking through her. And I, I can't remember if this is in the book or not, but uh, sometime in the year before she died, she insisted on going to the emergency room, and it was not an emergency, but she was so insistent the EMS people came, we got there. Then of course they wanted to do a full workup. And, uh, then she didn't want all of that. And I wasn't, I wasn't in the emergency room with her, but she called me and she said, you know, you need to stop them. I want to go home. And I said, mom, you're there now. You insisted on being there. They have to finish. And she kind of ripped into me and said, you know, I have done so much for you my entire life. You are the worst son. You will not get me out of this place. That really struck me. And I had to actually say to myself, that is not my mom speaking. it, it It was really challenging and it was still painful even though I knew that wasn't my mom actually speaking.
0: Exactly, that's how my dad was. It's just like, you just look at them. Yeah. You also make a point in the book to talk about some of the stupid things you won't do at the end. Now there, you've got a lot of personal stories. Why did you feel the need to add them to the book?
1: You know, I wrote the first two sections before my parents died, and uh, and then they got they both died within a hundred days of each other in, in 2017, and so that happened and. That kind of left me at a new crossroads, dealing, you know, dealing with uh, the loss, dealing with the grief, trying to kind of make sense of what had happened over the last five or ten years with with their sort of aging selves and and the time that they had been ill, and that also meant, you know, confronting some of the many issues that came up as they were actually dying. You know, part of um, you know, a big part of why I wrote this book was to sort of open the door to talk about topics that we don't love talking about, you know, earlier on, we don't love talking about getting older or becoming ill or vanity issues or, you know, disability and, you know, and even less so we don't like to talk about, um, you know, planning for death and dying, Plus, you know, sort of the, you know, the final wishes and all of that. So, it, it was a natural part of the book, but I needed to take some time to to get there myself, and also to have enough of a perspective to bring humor to some of those stories, not all of them, um, but a little bit of a, a distance eye, and um, yeah, you know, and that came. And in a way, I think that that section roots the book. You know, if I if I were to give my own critique, I think the first two sections. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of meaning and lessons in them, but they tend to be lighter and more funny. And then this last section is is really the heart of the book. And, and it's where it turns into a love story because, you know, the very beginning I talk about, you know, I'm being critical of my parents. And by the end, I understand, you know, we all have our limits. And in general, we try to do as good as we can uh, with the options that we have. And I do think that's what they did in the end. And um, so I was much less you know, much less cynical, much less, less critical, and, and more open-hearted with them.
0: You know, as as you're saying it, I do see the arc of the book, of, uh, and what we're about to talk about now, um, about being prepared at the end. You know, you talk about that you don't want to leave this life without someone holding your hand. Why is that important to you?
1: Well, I actually saw my dad kind of leave this life without someone holding his hand. Um, he was a tough character. He he had trouble reaching out to his family, to his loved ones, and uh, I think he felt very alone as as he was actively dying, and in, in the months up to that. You know, unlike my mom, who who um, really was close with her kids and close with her friends, and you know, we were all there with her when when she actually passed, and so. Yeah, I think when it's possible, when we have good, strong family relations, and and by family it can be family by blood, family by by choice. You know, those are networks that we can sometimes help to define because not everybody has a you know family of origin that that is supporting. Um, but we kind of come into this life, you know, being held, and and I hope for people that when we go out,
0: that we'll be held in some way. Yeah, and and I get where you talk about you don't want to let anything stop you from saying I love you and goodbye that hit me because i i remember with uh because my mom and dad passed away within less than a year of each other my mom was the first one to go and uh she thought she well they told she had cancer she didn't know she had and she thought it was they said oh she got six months and then she ended up being gone in a week so Mm -hmm. we got to you know the dynamics of the family changed and we got to you know tell her as much uh love you as 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 we could how was that because i know that's part of the crux of, you know, the, the relationship you had with your mother. Is that why you wanted to yeah. talk about that and why you feel that's what you want?
1: Yes. And, um, you know, I think many of us, if not most of us, you know, we're reluctant to acknowledge that someone is dying, forgetting that we are all going to die at some point. But it's, it's seen as, um, and I used to feel strongly this way, it's seen as some sort of gaffe if not worse than that, to acknowledge that maybe before um, it's time, and uh, you know, and the way I kind of learned about this was there are a couple of um, good friends who are actually you know contemporaries of mine who I missed the boat with. I didn't have a chance to tell them how important they were, how how much I love them. They died. They died quickly, and so now you know when I when I see that people you know. Maybe seriously, I'm just kind of like wanting to be open and let let them know how I feel about them. And, you know, the worst thing is maybe you're, you know, maybe it seems a little bit premature, but to tell someone that you love them is a gift no matter what. And, you know, I think some people think that it means that you've given up on hope, but they're really, they're really different things. One can maintain, maintain hope. Whatever that hope is for, and at the same time acknowledge the importance of someone in your life, and that you want them to know that. So they're really not um, kind of oppositional concepts, but
0: uh, in my experience, it's been very me- those have been very meaningful conversations. Yeah, one of the parts, the passages in your book that struck, uh, stood out to me is you write, "I love you, goodbye." Not many of us want to have that talk. It's a collective denial of death especially among the baby boomers who still feel immortal, sprinting and swimming like there's no tomorrow. The only way, the only one thing they um, can't acknowledge is that eventually there is no tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Um, you now,
1: to that point, I recently read this wonderful novel. I'm looking, um, it's, it's, under my, it's under my laptop here. It's called The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. And the title is about the measure of a life. Um, And so the the plot is to give it to you quickly, David, one morning in the spring, everybody on the planet gets a little wooden box and in the box is a string and it may be a short string or it may be a long string. And the string corresponds to what your longevity is going to be. And so some people learn that they're going to live a short time and other people learn they're going to live a long time. And then all the relationships play out, people die, people live. But the bottom line is it's not the length of your life. It's how rich and deep your life is in the time that you have that makes for the measure of a good life. And so that's really something that I've learned too, especially as I've seen you know, some of our contemporaries
0: leave us sooner than they would have liked and that we might have liked. Why do you feel it's so hard? Um, you write how you and your mother did it in terms of talking about death and, and going through the, her final days, final hours.
1: You know, my mom was ready to talk about her dying before I was. And twice she, um, she kind of opened that door. And twice I closed it because I wasn't ready to acknowledge that she was that ill. And then when it came to the third time, I realized I needed to get out of my comfort zone because I could help her by having this conversation. And, and the, first, the first question she asked was, you know, will it hurt when I die? And, you know, there is an answer to that. And the answer is, you know, with proper medication and she wound up having hospice care. No, it did not hurt. Um, you know, uh, so that was, you know, that was important to like assuage her um, concerns about that. And then the second question was about what, what would her legacy be to, you know, to her kids and her grandkids. And that was, that was more complicated, but that was really a, a useful and, and, and beautiful conversation to have. And so, um, you know, so since then, you know, I follow the lead of anyone who might be ill or seriously ill, but I try to travel with them. I try to go through the doors that they open and, and be there. And I think that's something that we can we can grow into if
0: we're if we're listening and if we're not afraid. Do you, do you feel that far too often people make it about them and not the person who's dying, and maybe because they're not comfortable, they can't handle the you know handle the truth. And, yeah, and then that's what's maybe what's holding them back is they're making it about them, and it's not their journey.
1: You know, I think we we often make it about ourselves, and in this particular case, it's such a you know it's such a big and final step. And you know, if you're talking about if you're talking about a parent, or if you're talking about a spouse, you know, uh, that is such a life changing potentially such a life changing loss that it's almost um you know it's almost impossible for us to comprehend. Uh, you know i'll add in here that since i wrote the book my sister who's um, younger than me she's 60 she has developed um, a very serious cancer it's a life-threatening cancer and um she has insisted that we talk about um death and dying and i've been very reluctant because she's my baby sister she's she's been around you know my whole life i can't really fathom this we talk every day but she has asked for that help, and I have gone on that path with her, and um, as has the rest of our family, she's really been a leader in this. And it's something I think that collectively we learned from going through our parents' deaths, which were only five years ago, though.
0: Right. I think it, it struck me because when you say that, when you lose a parent, you're to me in, in my life. I it, it seems like the path I was going in my life was going one way. And it's slightly altered since they're no longer there. It Everything just seems to change. Everything isn't the same. It's not the same going through uh, something like that. And I went through, you know, within, uh, you know, within a year with the both of them. And it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, you're just not the same. And I, I guess that's the way you feel as well. And it's kind of hard because now your little sister's going through something.
1: Yeah. You know, after my so my mom died in January of, of 2017 and then my dad in April. And, you know, I, I was 59 that year and I remember thinking and here I'm an adult you know, and I've been married and I've got a life. I feel like an orphan. I feel like an adult orphan because I know some people you know, don't like the idea of someone who's an adult feeling like an orphan, but many people do. It's like you've had your parents there for better or for worse your whole life and now they're gone. And no matter what your relationship with them is, Wonderful or terrible, in some ways they are. You know where the needle on the compass points, and now they're not on that map. And I think that compass just kind of spins until we can find, you know, our own internal direction and sort of reset ourselves. So, uh, you know, I think one parent is challenging, but when you get to the second parent, whenever that is, that, yeah. that's even more challenging. And in, in my experience and the reporting
0: that I did, yeah, is that why you won't postpone for tomorrow what matters to you today?
1: that's the big, that's a big part of it. Um, You know, we don't know what tomorrow has. And um, so if that's more candy bars today, again, within reason, you know, I'm for it. But uh, the other part
0: is after 4.30, after
1: 4.30, after six. Yeah. And the other part, David, is that when I was a young man, when I was in my twenties, I had um, testicular cancer that had spread. And so that was a scary and life-threatening experience for me and a formative one in terms of not being able to count on a forever number of days of tomorrow. And really from that time, it made me focus more on, you know, today. And what do I want to get out of today? And how do I live, you know, how do I live in the present uh, in my relationships now, rather than looking, looking down a road that I
0: may not get to. When you, when you say that you had that uh, early health scare, do you, Mm Has it changed? Did your your perspective on life change then? And it's a different path to where you are now and, and, and how you look at life and death?
1: Well, in I remember back in that
0: day, it was unclear to me what, you know, whether I
1: would survive. And so it led to a series of decisions that were very like today focused. And so I was 26. I didn't start saving for anything until 10 years later when it was clear, I'm still alive and I'm going to need some sort of nest egg. And when it came to like work, I didn't go on a conventional career path. It was like, Oh, I'm interested in doing this. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do that. But it it was not really coherent. I was kind of bouncing around and, you know, that's, um, that's not uncommon among, among cancer survivors. And there was a certain amount of depression inv- involved with all of that too. So it took me some time to kind of uh, rebalance myself um, and to get some therapeutic help and then kind of get back on a more, you know, I'll call it a conventional um, work and life plan. But, uh, but that was, so that was then, you know, now when I look back, it also gave me different experiences and it's helped me to see um, you know, how life can be tenuous and how life can be precious at the same time and to, uh, you know, and to live fully because we still, we still don't know when, when, you know, when the end is going to come.
0: Yeah. So having what you've gone through, who would you want when that time comes? Cause it sounds like you, you've got your, your life together and things are going well health wise. You're doing well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So who would you want to your, write your obituary? <laughs> so there is a chapter in the book about, um,
1: the, the kindness to others of writing your, your own obituary. And uh, it also, I, I was actually surprised. So I have not written my own obituary to, to be honest, but I, I actually, I talked to many people who have, and I was surprised by how many people who had. And so I'm thinking of you know, one woman, a friend of mine, and she's a, she's a very powerful um, female philanthropist, and she wants her life story told through a feminist paradigm. So she has written hers. Um, Uh, Someone else I know who's who's like me in terms of grammar and all that, he does not want one of his family members, you know, put in misplaced participles, not doing the Oxford comma. So he's got it down, you know, 100 percent right his way. But I I think it's a way also to take something else off the plate of, you know, of the next of kin. So if it's something that you're comfortable with. you go ahead and do it. I think it also allows allows us to think about, well, what did my life mean? And how do I want to, how do I want to leave that story to others? And so that, that may be the most important reason to
0: just think about it and talk about it. And so does that apply to your funeral? And when you're saying taking something off your plate, in the book, you talk about, um want to have the Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> know where you're going, dog. David. Okay. You want the Mary Tyler Moore song to be playing. So let's take a listen first. Of people who are not of our generation know what that song is. And then when we come back, you're going to explain what's the story behind that. Who can turn the world down with a smile? Can take a nothing day And suddenly make it all seem worthwhile Well, it's you, girl, and you should know it With each glance and every little movement you show it Okay, so,
1: so Please so that um, to me. so that song, the title is "Love Is All Around." First of all, it was the theme to the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which was um, a hit sitcom in the 1970s. It was um, it was a, a really favorite show of mine, and continues to play on in, in, in reruns. But that song is, you know, speaks to me about. You know, the importance of love, the importance of cultivating love in our lives and, um, and how it lasts. And so, you know, there's kind of um, you know, a beautiful sentiment in it. There's a memory element to certainly my generation and anyone who knows me associates me with that song. So um, I think, you know, thematically and, and otherwise, that would be a nice aspect of, you know, of whatever kind of service that I have. And so my siblings and others know to do that. Just okay. hope they pay attention to me.
0: When I saw that and then I listened, when Conjure Up in my mind, again, in the 70s, it came on on Saturday nights. When I think of Mary Tyler Moore, I think of the episode where Chuckles the Clown died and she it was the funeral. She, she thought, uh, they thought she was crying when she was actually laughing. Um, and the, the classic line that stays with me a little... Um, a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants—that still kills me today. When I saw that, that's what I thought at first with Mary Tyler Moore. But your, your, what it meant to you was something different. But okay. Uh, well, I would say that is my favorite
1: episode <laughs> of all of them. And you know, to just speak a little bit more about it, she is appalled. So Jekyll is the character of the TV right. station. She's Appalled. And, he, and he's, you know, he's in this um, peanut costume and an elephant eats him and he dies. So it's completely ridiculous. But to so everyone else in her office is like hysterical, you know, peanut, elephant. And she's aghast with them. She's holding it all in. She gets to the funeral. She can't control herself. This is another way that we express grief sometimes through laughter or hysteria. Uh, but it is
0: hysterically funny. A little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down little. your pants. That never gets tired for me. Recently, I had an individual on. She was talking about the importance of writing letters. And, and then when I was reading your book, you also talk about the importance of writing letters to your loved ones. Why is it mm-hmm. important to you? You know, this is another way
1: to be mindful and to be kind and thoughtful to to those who might um, uh, outlive us and so that that the chapter of that book talks um about a very good friend of mine jacqueline zinn who um died about nine years ago from from brain cancer after being ill for about a year and a half and you know as many people know that's a very that's a terrible disease she had four kids she was married and they were young i think the oldest was in college at the time and so as she was dying this was in the last three months and part of her body was paralyzed she hand wrote these four letters to her kids four letters to each for graduation from high school from um, college when they got married and and so on and she wanted this to be a way for them to remember her and for her to be able to continue to communicate with them and um, one of the sons jerry Lent me some of his letters. And they're, they're in the book. And you know, they're just, they're so beautiful, even not being her son. And then for him, I can see the, the power that they have. She hand wrote them and she had, she had that very traditional kind of 1950s, 1960s penmanship, you know, with the where the G is, you know, full of curves and the Q. And the handwriting says Jackie. And so there's so much that's in those letters and they really are a prized possession of, of Jerry's and, and his siblings.
0: And that's a lost art, the hand uh, handwritten notes, you know, having a nice pen in your hand, writing those notes and then sending them off to someone, you know, emails and texts they're fleeting. But to get that handwritten note, I'm sure that uh, it means a lot to the kids to have that uh, piece of their mom still with them for, uh, for forever and ever. Yes. My, my, my last question to you is, at this point in your life, you know, you're getting older. Are you satisfied of where you are in your life? And what do you hope so people are going to get from reading your book? That's a big last question. I like to go out uh, with a bang. Yeah.
1: So am I satisfied with my life? Yes.
0: Um, I,
1: um, you know, day to day, I am, I am pleased with the balance that I have. Um I'm divorced now. I'm pleased with the social life that I have. You know, I've kind of I've kind of worked hard um, to get to a good place and to to be resilient and to learn the skills of of being resilient, you know, which isn't to say that I don't see room. I do see room, you know, for more growth. Um, and I hope to have the opportunity, you know, to have more more time and more growth. So so that's 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 it for me. You know, for the book. It's been a year since it came out, and I've just been really pleased at the kinds of conversations that it has spurred among many people, and especially parents and their kids. It's it's proved to be this kind of bridge to talking about topics that they might not otherwise have. And I think that's why writers write things. You know, we want, we want to engender conversations. We, um, we hope to make a difference. We hope to expand the possibilities of of how others can live and hopefully in, you know, in good and meaningful directions. So that's, that's, that's why I wrote the book and, and that's the gratification that that I've gotten out of it so far.
0: Well, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Like I said before, it, it's, it's funny. And then you've got the emotional connection. Um, you know of you know dealing with parents and their sickness and, and it, it took me back to what I had to go through uh with my parents uh, and I appreciate um you know what you wrote and um, it also made me think you know what I wasn't the only one that's gone through it and and, and being an orphan so mm-hmm. Steve Petro I'd like to thank you for being on the Executive Help Podcast I'd like to have you on when that next book is out and we'd have another good conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe we're gonna have another quote from Mary Tyler Moore. I don't know, or maybe something else you wanna use. Maybe something Uh, else. (laughs) Maybe something else. Okay, so Stephen Petro, author of Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Once again, thank you for being on the Executor Help podcast and uh, hope to talk to you very soon, sometime down in the future. Thank you. Thank you, David.
1: You've been listening to the Executor Help podcast. For more details, visit DavidEady.com or follow David on Facebook, LinkedIn or Twitter.